Why? Now the Lord knows you need a wake-up call before the speaker starts to speak. You know, the nerves start building a little bit when I hear the final hymn, and then crescendos typically by the last verse. What a glorious hymn to sing before we dig into the Word of God, knowing that after 10,000 years, it'll be like the first second, but less than that in heaven. Uh, before I start the message that the Lord laid on my heart this morning, I'll just give an update. Last night, the open-air campaigners team at Seal Beach uh, Pierce saw Two Souls Trust Christ. Uh, we some wonderful ministry the night before at Huntington Beach. No open professions, but the Lord's hand has not been shortened. Pray for the work. Uh, our brother Russ Hodder, who was the team leader until Monday, Monday on his 70th birthday, he went in and had knee replacement surgery, and, and he passed over leadership of the team to Frank, Frank Baldus, who today is over at our, with our brothers and sisters in Buena Park. Uh, Russ's surgery went great, so we've, again, we covet the prayers, not only for the health and the well-being of those who are on part of the team, but also for the work, for when you pray for that work, you're every bit as much a part of it as those who go out and preach, and those who are counseling, and those who are praying on site. We want to always remember to pray that the work of the Lord would continue unabated, that the saints would be built up and encouraged. As I often mentioned, pray for our Baptist brothers down the street. They're not they're not the competition. They're our allies in the battle for winning souls for the Lord Jesus Christ, about whom we worship this morning at the breaking of bread, gloriously, and about who we've been singing, our Redeemer. What a glorious thing. Well, we're going to look at some of the, the things that have been accorded to us uh, this morning. Uh, we'll read a little bit from Ephesians and uh, then move into the, the meat of the message. We have received so much, and yet we have so little understanding of how deep it really is. In, the, in this wonderful letter where Paul has talk, talked about us being seated in the heavenlies, all this has been accorded to us. He mentions his thoughts of them in the Lord Jesus Christ and then offers up some wonderful prayers for them. In Ephesians 1, starting with verse 13, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of the inheritance in the saints. Jumping over to the third chapter where Paul talks about how it's, he's been privileged with revealing this mystery of the church. He speaks about one of the purposes of the church in verse 10 of Ephesians 3, that the manifold wisdom, you know what a manifold is, that's where many thoughts and streams are combined into one, that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. 
immediately takes us to 1 Peter 1.12, doesn't it? Where the gospel of salvation delivered by the Holy Spirit unto mankind, this gospel of redemption about which we were singing, even the angels desire to peer into it. And the authorities in the heavenly places, even Satan and the demons are looking at this, seeing this miraculous work of love going on with mankind being redeemed. Continuing in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth. How's that? 2,000 years ago, Paul's talking about the four dimensions of the three and a half we live in. Length, height, and depth, with breadth being duration. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Father, we pray that, that you would speak to us all this morning. I'm grateful for the prayer of my brother that you would speak through me, even as these electronic speakers on the wall make no sound of their own, lest they detract from the message. So, Father, let your words flow forth. Give us the wisdom to understand them and the courage to act on them, Father. In all things, we seek to give glory and exaltation to your name and that of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we worship and in whose name we pray. Amen. Turn with me to Exodus 33. This morning, we're going to look at the glory of God. The glory of God in, in what it is. And at its core, it's, of course, as we've just been reading, the fullness of the nature of God. And we should ask ourselves, if we come to an understanding of this glory, how should it impact us? Glory is defined by some as abundance, riches, honor, splendor, dignity, and reverence. Maybe brightness, too. Those fit with the concept of glory, but they fail to convey the true power of the glory of God. All the, the Hebrew words in the Old Testament, in doxa in the New Testament, they all kind of echo in description those words I just read. But we'll look at one word for just a moment. It is the Hebrew word chabad. And when you take the word by itself out of the context of everything else, what it means is heaviness. And maybe that starts to hint at the weight of the glory of God. We know that the weight of the glory of God can crush a man. No man can see God and live. Yet in his mercy, he protects us. But he does seek for us to understand it, and he wants us to seek his glory. Exodus 33, this is where Moses is on the mountain. This is in the aftermath of the golden calf, the sexual immorality, the idolatry, the broken tablets, which represent a broken covenant. Moses, you know, God has asked him to lead the people. And Moses wisely is there talking with God and asking. Uh, let's read what he says in verse 13. Moses speaking to the Lord. See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, 
so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Now, this, this is a, a glorious and a wise and wonderful thing that Moses is asking. He says to himself, if I know God's ways, I'll know him. Then I can be pleasing in his sight. Then I'll be equipped to lead his people. What's God's reply to him? My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Comforting words. Moses continuing addressing God. If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? The Lord saying to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. And Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then... I will take away my hand, and you may see my back, but my face shall not be seen. You know, we too, like Moses, should um, seek God's glory and should seek that he would lead us, that we would know his ways, that we might lead the people that are following us in Christ as well as to lead those who are the lost to Christ. Because we do want God to accompany us in everything we do. Unless the Lord is in it, they that build the house labor in vain. What kind of an answer does Moses get? We'll jump over to Exodus 34. And again, now here Moses is on the mount to receive the second set of tablets, the renewal of the covenant. But we get the answer to Moses' prayer. God has said he's going to let his glory pass in front of him. Verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. The glorious thought. But the goodness and the glory of the Lord doesn't stop there. It says, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Part of God's glory is his justness. Visiting iniquity on the fathers, on the children, and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now, that portion brings a lot of confusion. You know, we're told that God can do with all souls what he wants. Ezekiel 18, he says, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, the soul of the Son, that soul that sins must die. But he makes it clear the, the Father won't die for the sins of the Son, neither will the Son die for the sins of the Father. <laughs> Yet, the impact of the sin of the Father can have a negative consequence on his children, grandchildren. Think about the Israelites we're going to see later, uh, not to this morning, but if we continue the story, because of their unbelief and their sin, they're forced to wander in the wilderness. Their children who are not guilty of that sin still suffer 40 years of consequences that their parents put them through. Well, what's the response here? We've seen the glory of the Lord and the proclamation of his name in front of Moses. And this is where God takes his hand away. 
What does Moses do? Verse 8, Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Moses has found favor in the sight of the Lord. He's known by name. He's spent time in the presence of God. But this is the first place in Scripture where we have Moses bowing down in worship. The sight of the, of the Lord's glory caused him to worship. At least that's the first picture we have in Scripture. He said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our sin, our iniquity, and take us as your possession. You were told Moses is the most humble man uh, in the world. But whatever sense of pride or worthiness before God he had was burned away with the presence of the glory of the Lord, and he's confessing his sin along with the people. God now renews the covenant. Then God said, Behold, I am going to make a covenant. Before all your people I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth nor among any of the nations. And all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord. For it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform with you. Moses, in seeing the glory of the Lord, has now been made strong, wise in the way of the Lord, an understanding of himself. And he's fit for leading the people. He was driven to worship. You know, worship is a, is a, a three-sided, three-faceted um, thing that we should undertake. First, worship involves speaking. That is um, praising God in thought and in, in voice. Thought, whether it's silent. We certainly hope the sisters are praying uh, during the meeting when the men are vocally praying. We should have this praise rising up to the Lord. But worship is also, in the second facet, listening with awe and reverence in, 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 a, in valuing what God has to say. We should be listening. And then thirdly, worship involves doing. Indeed, of all the words in, in the Bible that speak and are translated into worship, half the time they're translated worship, the other half of the time they're translated serve. Worship should express our heart, it should involve our mind, our intellect, and it should be demonstrated by our body in obedience. One facet is, again, is giving praise upward. Second is receiving instructions. And the third is acting on those instructions. And if we can see the glory of God, for he's provided us plenty of evidence, we begin to understand God, that is going to order for ourselves our steps. You know, God's glory is beyond our ability to comprehend. We cannot behold it, but he has given us plenty of evidence. We're told that all creation bears witness uh, of, of his majesty, might his glory. And we're his creation. And we're told that we, we're created in his image. You know, to all living beings, defined, by, I think, by is it Leviticus 17.11, the, the life is in the blood. Virtually almost all the living creatures have been given the, the five senses, uh, sight, smell, uh, touch, taste, and, and hearing. Not all of them. There's a couple that don't have sight, maybe a couple that don't have hearing. But that's given to all. But to which of his creatures is he given also this emotive gift where we're stirred to awe and praise? I mean, you see a, a, a beautiful sunrise or sunset. All those years on the sea, I saw a lot of them. The, the things of beauty we see around us. To which of his creatures is he given that emotive gift? The sense of smell. Uh, again, the scent of a loved one or a flower. <laughs> Maybe that... that Breakfast beverage you're looking forward to, or maybe it's the bacon. No, that, that speaks to taste, doesn't it? But these are gifts. And maybe this allows us to stand at the very far distant edge 
of understanding, where we're beginning to commence to start to get ready to plan to think about understanding God's grace and His glory. For His grace is a part of His glory that He's extended to us. We understand that free gift, I think, more so than we do the fullness of His glory. Um, again, the sense, the sense of taste. Are we, we, like the animals, eat because we need to. But who amongst the animal kingdom also eats because they love the food that they're eating? Same thing with sound. We love to hear the voice of a loved one. Um, if you've ever been in the wilderness and have heard a wolf howl in the wilderness, that touches the very bottom of your soul. I don't know what it is. Even a coyote. What is it that stirs us? This is a gift from God. But music. I'll go out on a limb here, and hopefully I'm not the only one left hanging out on this limb. Am I, I the only one who ever listens to secular music? <laughs> well, I guess I am. Um, we need to be careful what we listen to. God has given unto mankind this ability to create. But what is created comes out of the heart. And with music, can I say it runs from the sublime to the, dare I say, satanic? We need to be careful what we listen to. But there is some glory in music. Bach. How did he put that? It was sola gloria Dio, all to the glory of God. His desire was to have well-regulated music for the church. Well, all these things, coupled with our intellect, give us an ability. And I think because we're created in the image of God, we might use this to look at the glory of God and realize if we're stirred to a sense of awe by these things here in creation that are going to burn up, what should we do with the glory of God that's eternal? You know, we're going to be floored with joy, and unbelievers are going to be floored with a, a sense of foreboding and doom. But the glory of God can cause us to shrink back. We have that in Scripture. Hebrews uh, 10.38, listen carefully to these words. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Again, if we look at the Israelites, it's pictured there. And in Exodus 19, we have this, the perfect will of God is this, that all Israel should be a kingdom of priests before him. They should represent God to the world. You jump on chapter 4 to Exodus 20. The glory of the Lord descends on the mount. The smoke, the fire, and the, the sound of the Lord's voice like a trumpet getting ever louder. And what do they do? They go, oh, we want no part of this. Let him not speak to us lest we die. Let, speak to us through this man. They shrank back. They were, they were his children. Well, I think it's a picture of, of the lost. It's a picture of somebody who's a child of God who shrinks back from what he's being asked to do. Let, let's go to John 17 because we're going we're to read uh, the wonderful high priestly prayer of Jesus. He prays for himself, he prays for the disciples, and he prays for all the saints. And you know, um, God has made it clear he will not share his glory with another. In other words, there is going to be no other glory on display but his. And yet we're going to see that his desire is that he wants to give us some of his glory. But it's his glory, it's not our glory. John 17, starting with verse 1. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus gives the Father glory. He's done the work, and now he wants to be glorified again. Again, that's a pattern for us to follow. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So here Jesus prays to the Father to keep them. Why? First, because they, they belong to the Father. Second, because Jesus has been glorified in them. Jesus had been keeping them, but Jesus is departing. So thirdly, he's giving them back to the Father for keeping but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. You know, we heard earlier that Jesus says, I, I was in the world, but now I'm I'm." I'm not in the world, but they're in the world. And here twice he says, though we're in the world, we are not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Father, thy word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. So he asks the Father to keep them from the evil one. And then Jesus gives the marching orders, go out into the world. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may know, may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glorious unity of the body, right from the, the mouth of Jesus. Do you think any of these prayers that Jesus is praying is out of the will of God? Do you think the Father is not going to grant his request? United with the Father and Son, that the world may believe. We receive marching orders also. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. The hope of glory, they were in both Father and Son, one with them, and we'll see and share in the glory as they give it to us. Look at that first portion of verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. The Holy Spirit resides within us. It's part of the Godhead, right? There's glory. 
the dimness of our vision in our eyes prevents us often from seeing it. That's why we, we have the example in the word. That's why he speaks to our heart and leads us. Finishes with, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. You know, those final words there always remind me of Psalm 22, Messiah speaking. First portion of that, that psalm, he's speaking from the cross. But you get down to verse 22, and now Messiah is speaking to the Father. He says, I will bear witness of your name amongst my brethren in the assembly. That's what Christ, the Lord of glory, did. He came to earth to bear witness of the Father. Jumping down, I think it's to verse 25, he says, and I will receive from you praise in the great assembly. Again, that's a pattern for us. We ought to bear witness of the name of God, the Father, and of the Son, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, that we too might receive praise in the great assembly of heaven. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Do we not long to hear that? Glory ought to drive us uh, to our knees in worship. Well, let, why don't you, we're running out of time. Why don't you run over to 1 Corinthians uh, 10 or maybe 11, and I'll just read briefly about what the effect of glory has on others like Moses who were, we would view as being sanctified before the Lord. In e Ezekiel, when he's being commissioned, uh, he sees this throne in a, in a figure upon it with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire and there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. And as he spoke with me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet. Took the Spirit to stand him up and bring him back to his senses just from seeing the likeness of the glory of, of God. We're all familiar with the passage in Isaiah 6. I, I, maybe I shouldn't presume. Isaiah 6. Isaiah, for five chapters, has been um, ministering as a prophet before the Lord. And in the sixth chapter, this man, who again, we, he's, he's being used of God. We had assumed that he's appear before the Lord, and yet in the year of King Uzziah's death, he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And as our brother prayed this morning, the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah says, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Again, any sense of value he had as a prophet before the Lord was burned away by the glory of the Lord. But what does the Lord do? Restores him. He sends an angel that touches his lips, says, your sins have been forgiven. We see the glory of the Lord presented in numerous places. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten, uh, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1.3 talks that Christ is the, um, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation or character. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says that 
For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That exact representation, the Lord of glory coming to earth, is the exact representation of the glory of God. You know, the glory of God dispels light. The glory of God also dispels death. Death cannot exist in his presence. And through this glory and through the work of our Redeemer, we can partake in that glory and have life. Romans 6, 4, Therefore we've been buried with him through the baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might have newness, walk in newness of life. Again, that evidence, this glory of the Lord upon us. Finally, Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. So what should we do with this glory? Well, as I said, one phase of worship is, is service, so obedience. We came together this morning in obedience. As our brother made mention in the instruction, we have this command for evangelism. What did Jesus said in Mark 16, 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel unto all creation. What did they do? Verse 20 says, they went out and preached while the Lord worked with them. Matthew 28, we have the command to, to make disciples of the world and baptize them. Jesus says, all authority has been given me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Those are pretty specific commands. They're not suggestions. That doesn't mean everybody has to go out on the street, the street corners with the preaching team and preach the gospel. But as that announcement was made this morning, we certainly hope that there's going to be some who say, I'm interested in evangelism. I don't think I can go out and share my faith door to door, but I can pray. Come be part of the evangelism team by praying. That's the foundation upon which all work of God is done. We gathered at the worship table this morning. And that's something we do is a form of worship. Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. What? The, the bread broken as his, an emblem of his body. The cup poured out, an emblem of his blood, which is our new covenant of life. His blood has washed away our The life is in the blood. We don't force anybody to take part in that. In, in fact, we try to protect the Lord's table. Now, I don't think we need to protect the Lord's table from unbelievers. They're already doomed. They can't get any more lost than if they're lost. But again, for, we have the warning in 1 Corinthians 11 about those who partake in an unworthy manner. And those who maybe don't fully understand, we would say, then sit and listen. We don't, we don't force anybody to take part. We spoke about baptism in uh, Matthew 28. Same thing there. Um, it, maybe that's a little easier to understand than some concepts. I'm, I'm buried with Christ in the water when I go down, and I'm raised with Christ when I come out. It's, it's a symbol. It should be the first act of obedience, and it's a method of worship. Well, having said that, and all these things, there's no compunction to do them. And I, I want to cover a topic. We haven't talked about it lately, but it has to do with the glory of God. So let's go to 1 Corinthians uh, 11, and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the head coverings. People think immediately, head coverings, that's, that's instruction for the women. No, it's instruction for men and women. 
Um, and it has to do with the glory of God. And it's just like the Lord's table, uh, just like baptism. It is a, it's a way in which we're just honoring God. I know it's been a practice that's largely been uh, released by most of the church today. Uh, I, I think to their shame. And they're passing up an opportunity to worship God. But let's just talk about it a little bit. And again, not trying to lay a guilt trip on anybody. We're not going to ask anybody or judge them whether they do or don't. If you, if you understand what it is, at least then you can maybe make a decision. Um, 1 Corinthians 11 to 14 is all about the order within the meeting. When the church comes together for a meeting in corporate body. I'd say it actually begins back in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 9. We could say the whole book, but in 1 Corinthians 9, um, Paul starts to tell the Corinthians, look, you need to do things according to the rules. He says, if you're going to run a race, if you don't run according to the rules, you're disqualified. And there's almost that paranoid statement he makes about running a race. Therefore, I subject my, keep my body under subjection, lest after having preached to others, I myself might be disqualified. It's not about salvation. It's, it's about as a believer in Christ, is he going to get all the rewards he could get? If you, if, you can't get a prize in the race if you don't run according to the rules. The 10th chapter, he talks about the, the error of the Israelites and how we should avoid them. And, and he ends with this verse that really I think should be the beginning of, of chapter 11. It says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then he gives a reason about why we should do these things for the glory of God. It's so that many might be saved is how he ends the chapter and then he moves right into uh, 1 Corinthians 11. And he's going to give them a, a compliment, as they say, because he wants to give them correction. And correction tastes a lot better on the, on the, the back of a, a compliment than it does just being uh, lambasted. So he says in verse 1, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. But... So he's going to give instruction and a little bit of correction. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now in that very statement there, if we read it carefully, you can discern this has nothing to do with the value of the individuals that are being spoken of here. God is the head of Christ. Well, we worship a triune God, separate but equal. No, this is, this is speaking to and has regard to an assignment that has been made. You know, in the, the tabernacle, you had the high priest in the temple too, the high priest, the priests. And with the tabernacle, you had all those folk that had to take care of all the implements, setting it up, taking it down, carrying them. And then you had the Israelites. Now, God's not a respecter of persons. They're all the same. But they have different jobs to carry out. And that one would carry out his job and another carried out his. And in unity, then, the entire job was completed because they each contributed, and that's what's being spoken of here. So, lest you be offended, the man and the woman, we're going to see, are quite equal. He's going to go out of his way to prove that through Scripture. Verse 4, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. We're talking about like a cabeza? We're talking about this physical thing on top of my shoulders? No, who's my head? My head, in verse 3, tells us it's Christ. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying, and again, we certainly hope the sisters are praying silently while us, we hope you're praying for us men as we're getting ready to stand up. 
But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. Well, who's her head? Again, verse 3 tells us it's the man. And again, it has nothing to do with value. It has to do with an assigned job that is handed out. For she is one and the same as a woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off of her head or her head shaved, let her cover her head. And again, any fair reading of this verse right there removes any possibility of hair being the covering that's being talked about that's needed here. You can't make that work. They, the math doesn't add up. Now, we are told a little later that she is given her hair for a covering, and we're going to describe what that's for. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. In verse 3, we had this description of what the job functions were going to be, and here we have more illumination of that. It says here, the man, the command for head coverings goes both ways, right? Us men, we're not supposed to wear head coverings while we're in the meeting of the church. Why? Because he is the image and glory of God. That's the reason that's given right here. But the woman is the glory of man. A man doesn't have anything about him that makes him more glorious in the eyes of God than a woman. But as part of this job assignment, it's being told here that in the assembly meeting, the man is going to stand up and represent the image, the glory of God. And then that the woman is the glory for the man. There's several verses here that go back to creation and it just talks and it's going to lay down as fact that man and woman are equal in the eyes of God. But there's an order and it has to do with these assignments he gives. For a man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority in her head because of the angels. You know at the opening of meeting of Paul speaking uh, about the, uh, to the Ephesians, and then I'm mentioning 1 Peter 1.12, angels desiring to peer in. See, they're watching what we're doing in our meetings. It goes far beyond just the head covering. What are we doing to reveal the glory of God and conceal the glory of man? However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man nor is man independent of woman. You should immediately think of Galatians 3.28. There is neither, neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, um, male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. For as a woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. And there's just this reinforcement here. This has nothing to do with the value or some form of punishment or giving more glory to the man or the woman. No, we each have a job function to carry out. Verse 13, judge for yourself, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? The very construct of the verse demands, and it's a rhetorical question. The answer has to be no. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. Man is the image and the glory of God. Woman is the glory of man. What is the glory of woman? Her hair is given to her as a glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. And this is where 
some proponents of, of their view would say that's the covering that's being spoken of. But in the context of the chapter and in concert with Scripture, that's not what's being pictured. The woman's glory is her hair. What does a woman's hair cover? It covers the woman, doesn't it? What is the glory of man? Woman. Her hair covers the glory of the man. And when she puts the mantilla, the head covering, the, the hat on her head, what does it cover? It covers her glory. The woman, in wearing the head covering, covers both the glory of man and the glory of woman. If the glory of man and the glory of woman is covered, which glory remains? The glory of God. That's the intent. Uh, you know, um, some of you have heard me uh, preach on uh, theology, speaking of Reformed and Arminian, Universalism and that. You know that I'm, I'm not a fan of Reformed theology, but one of the strong proponents of Reformed theology spoke uh, to this passage, R.C. Sproul, and he, he gave a reasoned approach uh, for what all this meant. And he concluded with, he says, I recognize that there's some confusion and disagreement. He says, but the instruction's pretty clear. He says, so I ask you, would we be better off to be obedient to something we don't fully understand or should we just ignore it? He says, I, th I think the answer's obvious. Uh, unfortunately, it's not obvious. This is a teaching that's been lost because the why of it being done, as Jabe would say, has been lost, so the what is lost. Verse 16, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, neither do the churches of God. That decimates any argument that this is a cultural thing for uh, Corinth. And even if that wasn't there, would we also throw out the Lord's Supper, which occupies the second half of this chapter, or the rest of the teaching of Corinth? There's nothing here that says it's cultural. It's a simple request from God. He says, I'm going to give you an opportunity to conceal your glory and reveal mine. And in return, Jesus will give us glory. Paul finishes with, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. So that they needed instruction here. Again, I, I, I hope nobody's offended by the word of God coming out of this. I, these aren't my words. I'm just reading what scripture says. I, I gave you some comments on it. It's just an opportunity you can worship God. Lord willing, tonight we'll uh, continue to look at the glory of God with regard to obedience and disobedience. Let me finish with just reading a, uh, a passage out of Revelation with this thought that, you know, one day we are all going to pass into eternity. For those of us in Christ, we're forever going to dwell in the presence of the glory of God. We ought to prepare for that day by understanding to the best of our ability the glory of God and living accordingly. Revelation 5, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and a number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea, and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne, 
and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. To which I say amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for that beautiful prayer of your son committing us into your care and then promising to send the spirit who would guide us into truth and cause us to remember his words. Father, help us so that like Moses, we would say, I want to know your ways because then I would know you. That we would be made and equipped in an adequate fashion to lead one another and to reach out to the lost, to reveal your glory to a lost and dying world. We confess we have no glory, Father, and yet we're so far from a full understanding. Help us, we pray. We pray that you will bless the evangelistic efforts that are made here. We know that we're doing your will and spreading the gospel. Again, help us to run the race according to the rules and do all things that your name would be exalted, that your son would be lifted up and glorified. Help us today as we go about our ways that we would continue to worship and consider the glory that one day, one day, we will behold with the ability to understand its fullness. Oh, we bless and praise your name, Father, and that of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who indeed is our Redeemer. Amen.